forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in time to tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh yeah! Hey, folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of this Writers Panel podcast. Hope you're all doing all right with the world being a monstrous hellscape right now. You may have noticed that we've slowed releases of the podcast for the time being. Honestly, it's just too difficult to muster up the wherewithal to record them. I think, like a lot of you, I'm having trouble focusing. I'm having trouble wanting to do anything that doesn't make a difference in the world. And much as I enjoy the conversations, much as I love talking with writers about writing, it's hard enough right now getting my writing work done. So I'm trying to lay off the things that take up too much attention or planning. But I do have some new episodes for you, which I think are really interesting. Back in March, my friend Martha McGee reached out to say she's teaching a class at DePaul University in Chicago called Topics of Television, The Showrunner. The class takes a look at different showrunners, their interests, styles, and how they've contributed to pushing television storytelling forward. And Martha asked if I knew anyone who might want to answer questions from the students about showrunning and TV storytelling. I thought this was a great opportunity to get some real questions from real new writers, folks who want to do this professionally, who want to be in television, but maybe don't have an idea of where to begin, the kinds of questions I really haven't been able to ask since we stopped doing the live episodes, the ones we, you know, we would get those questions from audience members. So I asked Martha if we could record the conversations, and she and the class agreed, I reached out to four of my favorite showrunners, people whose perspectives I really wanted to hear. Uh, Gloria Calderon-Kellett, Stephen Cannells, Kevin Beagle, and Aline Brosh-McKenna all agreed to give their time to the class and answer the students' questions. They really were great conversations. The questions were so smart and so astute. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy listening to these. So today's episode is with One Day at a Time showrunner Gloria Calderon-Kellett. Gloria has been a fairly frequent guest on this podcast and is an important member of our writing community. In this episode, she talks about some of the initiatives with which she's been involved both within and outside of the WGA. She also has a lot of terrific practical advice about showrunning and having a voice in television in all the ways that means. Uh, And she gives advice that I'll be revisiting again and again in the coming years, I'm certain. So thanks to Gloria for sharing her insights And thanks to Martha McGee and the DePaul students for sharing this conversation. Speaking of Gloria Calderon-Kellett, one thing I have been doing in these past few months is putting on live streaming shows for charity. We're doing the Thrilling Adventure Hour monthly again for the first time since 2015. We took that out of mothballs. We've got our whole cast coming in every month doing shows. Um, And through doing those, my wife and I saw the need for an all-in-one virtual venue to hold these events. And so we created one, uh, because it didn't really exist. Uh, It's called HouseSeats.Live, H-O-U-S-E-S-E-A-T-S dot live. And the goal of HouseSeats.Live is to make these shows feel like real events, not like you're just sitting in on someone's Zoom meeting. Through these shows, we've raised well over $100,000 for various nonprofit organizations. Um, my wife is smart. She figured out all of the tech on these things and the site looks gorgeous. Um, and you know, I get to use some producing skills in putting these on. We did the Mr. Show reunion, uh, last month and we have a bunch of really great shows coming up. A couple of which Gloria is involved with as well. Um, on June 20th is our next dead pilot society. And we're doing a really fun multicam script from Gloria Calderon-Kellett, which stars uh, Anna Villafagne from New Amsterdam, Taryn Killam from SNL, Anna Akana, uh, who you know from the internet. Uh, she's on Magical Girl Friendship Squad, Caitlin McGee from Bluff City Law, One Day at a Time's Todd Grinnell, a, lot more, a couple more people who are all so great. Um, that's on June 20th, and it benefits the LA Food Bank. Another new show I'm doing that I think writers panel listeners will really enjoy uh, is called Retrospects. 
I've teamed up with the WGA Foundation and with my friend uh, Emily Moss Wilson, who's a director, for a new show called Retrospects. In Retrospects, you'll see performances of early sample scripts from pro TV writers while they were still learning the ropes. Our first show is on June 28th, and it is insane. Uh, It features a Buffy the Vampire Slayer spec script written in 2002, so almost 20 years ago, by Julie Pleck, friend of this show, the creator and showrunner of The Vampire Diaries and all of its spinoffs and a bunch of new stuff, too. Um, It's a fun script, and we put together an incredible cast, including Isabella Gomez from One Day at a Time, who plays Buffy and is going to kill it, Uh, Percy Daggs III from Veronica Mars, David Anders, who you know from iZombie and Vampire Diaries, Lexi Underwood from Little Fires Everywhere, who was so good in that show. Uh, We also have Emma Caulfield, who was Anya on Buffy, and she's going to be playing Anya again in this retrospect. That show benefits the WGA Foundation and Color of Change, which is a great organization you should check out. Um, So again, that's on the 28th of June. Go to houseseats.live for tickets to that. All of our tickets are $5 or $10. They're all super cheap. We just want people to come enjoy these shows and to give to these organizations. And our next retrospects, which is in July, will feature a script by Gloria Calderon-Kellett. She wrote this Sex in the City uh, early in her career, and it's really fun. And we're putting together an awesome cast for that one, too. Uh, please go to houseseats.live and check out all the cool stuff we're doing and get entertained while also doing some good in the world. Thanks for checking that out. I appreciate it. We're real proud of what we're doing there and what the site looks like um, and the shows we've been able to pull off. And thanks, as always, for listening. So I'm going to ask just a couple of questions and then I'm just going to give it over to the class. Love it. And they all have questions for you. Love it. So, you know, my first question, just since this is the showrunner class, uh, could you describe your day-to-day responsibilities of running a show, as well as how you and your co-showrunner, Mike Royce, delegate those responsibilities? So every day it's a little bit different. Uh, We have usually 10 weeks of pre-production, which means it's 10 weeks where we're just with the writers. Eight to 10 weeks, I would say, is average. Uh, 10 weeks if you're lucky where it's just the writers and the showrunners and we're just blue skying and figuring out what the show is. Uh, Mike and I always do our homework as showrunners. Some showrunners don't. Some showrunners come in. I've worked on shows where they're like, what do you guys think? I don't know. And that's one way to do it. I don't think that's a good way to do it. Uh, The way Mike and I do it is we come in with a plan. We come in with a skeleton that we've already figured out. We know where the characters are going. We know what the arcs are. And I personally feel like the marks of a good showrunner is somebody who has a very clear vision and who makes a very clear path with their staff about how to move towards that vision. Uh, Blue skying leads to that's when you're there till two in the morning, which I've been on those shows and it's not great. The shows that I think have been the most successful are the ones where the showrunners have a very clear vision of what the show is. and And it might not be what my personal taste is, but at least I know what I'm pitching towards which is when you're on a staff, you are there at the service of the showrunner. When you are the showrunner, you are there to utilize your staff and your crew to make the vision that's in your brain come to life. And so the better you can be about communicating that vision, and I think being kind in communicating that vision, is, uh, is the best. Because then if you're nice to people, they'll want to work with you forever. They'll leave shows that they're on to come back and work for you. So I think kindness is a, is a big part of it. I'm not a yeller. I'm a hugger, although after Corona, who knows what's going to happen? Will a high fiver? I don't know. Uh, so in pre-production, it's mostly, you know, we start at 10, we talk and chat about our days, and sometimes that leads to story and sometimes that doesn't, and then we'll make a plan for what the day is. In pre-production, you are breaking stories. That's what we call, breaking story is what we call, you know, outlining the story areas. We'll... Usually the first few weeks, we'll talk about where we think we're going, where what we think the skeleton is, and then people might bring up things that go, oh, that's like Mike and I came in this season with so much stuff and we ended up not even using half of it because we just had so much. The room was just vibrant. It was a largely new room because we lost a lot of our staff when the show went down, they got other jobs. So it was just a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. And then we start to break down the stories 
And then once the story is broken, we will assign it to a writer and they will go off and write it write an outline, Mike and I will read the outline. So given any given day in that pre-production, we're either in the room breaking story, we are uh, talking to casting people about what we think the casting is gonna look like, we are communicating with our department heads to say these are the, the scenes and, and the sets and the props and everything, so that when you guys come on board, you're ready. And we are uh, giving notes on outlines and then eventually giving notes on scripts. And then eventually writing, uh, tabling, which is when the script is, has gone through two drafts, it goes into the room and we as a room go through it and punch it up. So that's all taking place the first 10 weeks. Then once we're in production, the week looks different. We're a Wednesday, Tuesday show, which means Wednesday is the start of our week. We have a table read on Wednesdays uh, where we hear it out loud, then we go and rewrite. Thursday is the producer run through. That's when the writers go down to set and we see what the director has put on its feet. We do another rewrite. Friday is the studio network run through where the studio network come down, watch the play, give us notes on it. Friday we rewrite and we pretty much lock the script Friday night so that the actors have the weekend to memorize. Monday we pre-shoot any uh, swing set scenes. Swing sets are sets that are off to the sides usually. Uh, so we'll shoot those. Sometimes if it's a large scene or something that Rita just wants to get in the can, we will do those, pre-shoot those on Monday just to have it and then shoot again in front of the audience on Tuesday. And then Tuesday we have a run through and then the live audience show. And during that, we are also prepping the, the scripts, editing, uh, you know, so a, a day is phone calls with casting, watching casting tapes, uh, going to editing, uh, going back into the room. Mike and I like to do everything together. Uh, so we usually do everything together. But we are incredibly decisive. We know exactly what we want. And I think we ordered dinner twice, which is very rare. Wow. Yeah. That is unusual. <laughs> yeah. We usually have pretty good hours. Wow. That's great. Um, so how many shows do you think that you would, if you're like in full swing of things, how many weeks of shows would you be looking at it like the same time at that week? Like one oh, shooting, one editing. It can be tons. It can be tons. Like. When you're in full swing, so because we're very anal retentive, we like everything broken before we start production. That sometimes can't happen, but we'll have at least 10 of the 13 broken before production in various stages of outline or, or first draft or second draft uh, or room pass. So for example, right now, all, the, all 13 are written. We just only shot six. We have seven left to shoot. Uh, so we will be, oh my gosh, there can be a table, re a, a table read day is a perfect example. Like Wednesday, we could be in the 406 table read and be doing the rewrite for 406 while editing 404, while reading and giving notes on 407. Well, I mean, it's, you have to get it all straight and be very organized because it's a lot. Yeah, and keeping and keeping dinner hours, getting home for dinner too. That's that is uh, it's discipline. All right, I know you all had lots of questions, and there's it's like twenty people in the class, so I wanted to make sure that I start calling on people. Uh, hi, I'm hi, Andrew. my name's Andrew. Um, my question was about, um, I guess, if you could sort of walk us through the process of how the show got started, like. Who like did the studio or Netflix approach you? Did you always intend it to be a one day at a time uh, reboot? Uh, were other ideas pitched? Can you, I, I guess just the whole beginnings sort of? Yeah. So what happens is I I do development. So development is different than staffing. So a lot of times when you're like staffing season is it normally would be right now weirdly, <laughs> um, and that's when you're going out for other people's shows. And then sort of around July, development season starts. This is kind of traditional network. Now cable and streaming, it's year round. But if you're, if you're going off of the basic network system, July is sort of when development starts. And they'll call you and say, we have a book. We have an article. We have an old show. We have an old movie. Do you have a take? Do you have, do you have a, a take on it? So I had a phone call. My agents called me and they said, hey, Norman Lear is thinking about redoing One Day at a Time with a Latino cast. Do you want to sit down with Norman? Honestly, I just wanted to sit down with Norman Lear. 
So I took the meeting. A lot of times I'll just take the meeting. So I took the meeting because I wanted to meet Norman Lear and he really was so uh, with it and funny and interested. And he, he just, it was like the best date, you know, he just like won me over. And he, uh, he said what we, he just started asking me a bunch of questions and then I got really invested and I felt like, Oh, okay. I'm really, I was really nervous to write about my family because I love them. And I've seen a lot of people write their family and it gets botched. And I, I felt comfortable that Norman would fight for me. If I said something, I was confident he would fight. Mike Royce was already attached to the project. He had run every, he was on Everybody Loves Raymond and Men of a Certain Age. He was already attached. So I was the last attachment. And at the end of that meeting, Norman said, you're, you're my girl, will you do this? So then Mike and I met and luckily we got along famously. Like he's one of my best friends now. It's insane how alike Mike and I are because he's a 52 year old white guy. And we don't, you know, but we are, we really, we are eye to eye, like crazy on a crazy level. Our taste is the same. So we just hit it off and, uh, he had showrun many shows and he was really great about saying, I'm going to teach you how to be a showrunner and you'll be able to do this for the rest of your life. Because at this point, guys, I'd already been in the industry 13, I'd already been a writer for 13 years on other shows. You know, I think that the worry I always have with students is that the odds are you're not going to be, a, your first job is not going to be a showrunner. You know, the odds are your first job is going to be like getting somebody coffee and being smart and knowing that you are above that, but you got to, that's, that's the gig and every job you learn and you learn and you learn. So I was definitely ready. Uh, I was definitely ready, but it was really wonderful to have this partner there to bounce ideas off of and to go through the journey with. Uh, and then obviously now I'm off, you know, this is my last season on the show and I'm off to do my new stuff at Amazon by myself. Um, so that's kind of how it came together. They, we just all hit it off. And, and Norman really just said, as long as it's a single mom and it's Latina, I don't care. Do whatever you want. And then Mike and I sat down and we talked about our lives. We both have a son and daughter. So we thought we'd make it a son and daughter instead of two daughters. For me, if I was divorced, my mother would live with me. She'd move in. That's the first thing that would happen. That's, what we, that's how we added Rita. Uh, so all of that just kind of came together. And, uh, and that's kind of, that, that was the beginning of it. Then we, Mike and I put together our entire pitch, 45 minute pitch, and we went into Netflix and pitched it. And then they said, great, let's do it. Wow. So he, so Norman Lear just gave you like leeway, just like, here's the guideline, yep. go for it. Yep. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tori. I was just curious, um, what do you think your greatest difference between you and later show running style for the one day at a time? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I don't actually know what Norman's show running style was because he's never, he's always been so deferential to us. Uh, I would say Norman as a person, I think is really, I'm really inspired by him because, you know, he, I've been to his house. He lives in a $56 million um compound in Bel Air or actually in like Brentwood. He could very easily just stay there and well what he's doing right now where he's so bored out of his mind. He could just stay there and just like live his life and he doesn't. He is so inspired by stories and different perspectives and has really used his uh place as a, you know, privileged guy to lift up voices. And so I'm really inspired by that. I'm really inspired by always listening, always trying to find disenfranchised voices to lift up because that is really his MO and it's, it's beautiful. He's legitimately really cares about people and really wants the world to be a better, more inclusive place. And so do I. So I think that, that we have that in line. You know, we, we think that there's, you know, network TV, I think is really boring and it's because it's been run by the same people forever and we're tired of those stories. So there's a lot of other stories that it's time. It's time for those stories to get the love. Um, hi, I'm Elisa. Um, I have a question of how would you describe your experiences being a Latina in the industry and what struggles have you had to overcome that made you a better person and a better showrunner? Well, I think what's really interesting is, you know, this is technically liberal Hollywood. 
<laughs> but my journey to being a writer came because I was an actress and every audition was, and I wish I was kidding, gangbanger's girlfriend or gangbanger's sister. That's every audition. So I'd have to like, I mean, I, I'm a writer, so I'm a, I look like a vampire, but I'm Latina, man. I get a beautiful caramel if I'm outside in the sun. I'm just never in the sun. So I would have to like spray tan and be like, okay, Chewy, put the gun down. Orale. It was like insane. It was so demeaning. And like, I don't know anyone in a gang. I don't, it's just, it's such a disconnect from what I know the Latino community to be. Both of my parents are Latino. Like, this is what I said. I'm first generation too. My parents like speak English. They have accents, real cute accents, but like I'm a first generation kid. And it seems insane to me that there is such an antiquated vision of the Latinx experience on television. It like blows my mind that we're 18% of the population and 3% of what's on TV it, it, and in stereotyped roles. So it makes me very nervous because I feel like we, how we experience culture, which is what we're all creating, how we experience it, it as a society affects how people treat one another. And there's a really great study uh, done on marriage equality and the LGBTQ movement and Will and Grace and Ellen being television shows and how those television shows being in America's household and being funny and lovely and delightful and not scary gay people, right? It made everyone go, oh my God, that's like my cousin or my friend or my brother. They're, They're just like us. And I feel like that's my mission with writing is that I went into writing from deep frustration at feeling like I've never seen my family on TV. I've never watched a show and been like, oh my God, that's just like my mom and dad. Or if I did, they'd be white shows that I'd have to sort of reframe. Uh, They don't eat the same things. They don't talk the same ways, but like, they're kind of like my family. And that was crazy to me that there was nothing that existed that I could point at. So for me, it was really writing a wrong by writing. You know, I could, this show is what my family is like. This one day at a time is the first time I've ever seen my family on TV and where we fight and we're crazy and we have these traditions, but we also love each other. We also are hard workers. We're also fighters. We're also, you know, all of the things that I never really got to see. So for me, uh, it was really great to finally have the reins because on other shows I was on, it would be, I'd be on staff where they'd be like, okay, there's a maid. Obviously she's Latina. And it's like, okay. Okay. So the only Latina we've ever had on the show is going to be the maid. Interesting. Like I'd have to say, I'd have to speak up and say that. Um, the same thing, you know, I would, I got, I got a lot of flack from how I met your, the how I met your mother boys. Cause I'm like, have you guys been to New York? I've never seen so many blondes in New York in my life. Ted's never dated one Dominican in New York City. He hasn't dated one Puerto Rican. Come on. Come on, guys. You know, and they're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, so it's, it's that. It's just, for me, it was, it was seeing that there was sort of an erasure of my experience. I felt that as a woman, too. I felt like I'd watch a lot of shows and be like, that's not how women are. What? Is it men writing women? What's going on? And not to say, I, there's so many men on our stuff that write women beautifully, but that is all because we talk, we communicate with one another, we share our experiences. And so uh, I think it's like requires listening and learning. Mike Royce writes beautiful scenes for Penelope. So it's not that, you know, cis white guys can't write Latinas, but I think there has to be wherein if you are a woman, a person of color, anybody that's disenfranchised, you've grown up with dominant culture. We know what it is to be white people, right? Because we've seen, that's all we've seen. The opposite is not as true. So in order to do that, we have to lift up voices and make sure that everyone's getting a seat at the table. And so that was really my point of view. I would be really surprised because I just didn't, I think when I watched TV, I didn't really know people wrote it. You know, when I was growing up and you're experiencing entertainment, you don't know who's talking to you. And then I felt when I finally got in the rooms, sometimes I was the only woman. Sometimes I was, I was definitely the only person of color and I was often the only woman. And it's like, oh, y'all are the ones telling us stuff? Like, oh, that's so interesting. That frames, that reframes why I always wanted to be blonde. I didn't think I was good enough unless I was a hundred pounds. Oh, cause it's all these white guys telling me what, 
they want. So for me, it was, I had to also, this is also a worthwhile opinion and voice. And so that really became my journey is how I love the, by the way, love those shows. I don't want those shows to go away. I love those, but I also would like to be at the table. I think we also would like to have a seat. So that was sort of, that was sort of my journey. And the more I've worked my way up the ladder, the more I've gotten a voice, a powerful voice where now, you know, I tweet and then they write a deadline article yesterday about a tweet. Like, I, like that's a new world for me that I didn't know that me tweeting something a month ago would have that much of an impact. But now it does because I'm in a different position now. But it's still crazy to me. I think there's also a big lie of diversity, which I can talk about, um, which is, you know, still rooms are largely male and white. White guys, don't worry. I think there's this thing being told to white guys that they have to be worried that we're taking all their jobs. No, it's still mostly you guys. Don't worry. It's okay. You're going to be okay. Um, but we would also like to be there. True for all of us, right? Yeah. But I, I, I love that, how you say, like, it's like, you need to be the change. Like, if you don't like what's on TV, like, you can yeah. make your own stories. Like, you yeah. can write. Yeah. Um, I'm Ashley. Um, my question was like, where did the decision come from to like specific, specifically include queer characters? Cause that's something we don't really see in shows that actually do feature like Latinas and stuff. And especially with the military family too, it was seemed a, like a very unique choice. Well, that really all came from personal stuff. So my point of view was to really bring the Latinx authenticity Norman is a veteran. He flew 52 uh, combat missions in World War II, and he's very deeply embedded in like veterans' rights. So he's the one that brought up the veteran aspect, like they should be veterans. They should, this should be a veteran family. And right now also in this country, the vast majority of, of our um, enlisted are people of color, which a lot of people don't know. So you have a lot of people of color going uh, abroad to fight. And, and it's also an incredible way for people to get an education because the VA does provide, the, the military does provide a really great program for getting educated. Uh, so that was him. And then Mike Royce, his daughter was coming out as we were writing the pilot. And he said, what do you think about making Elena gay? And we were amazing. Yeah, I've never seen that with, with Latinas. Um, and it's great because now I feel like there's a lot of gay Latinas on TV. <laughs> it suddenly sparked this whole thing, which is wonderful. Um, but yeah, we thought it would be a, a really great, and then it really, that idea is that sparked the journey of the first season, which is Elena's slow coming out. And a lot of that is thanks to it. We had queer writers in the room N and not just one. We had several uh, queer writers that were telling us their experience, that were talking to us about tropes, things that I had never through my, you know, straight brain needed to ask questions in a safe space to wrap my brain around stuff. And they were so lovely and open. And, uh, and I think that's why that, that storyline popped is because it came from an authentic place. Hi, thank you for doing this. Hi, Peter. Uh, could you describe some of the challenges you faced mastering the non-writing -ele non elements of, of showrunning? You know, managing of people, it's interesting because a lot of showrunners, there is now the Guild, the Writers Guild has a showrunner training program for people that have deep development. Uh, but before that, there would be writers who had no managerial experience who were running these shows. And the, those are the stories you hear of people. I don't know if you've heard the stories of people there till 2 a.m. And I've been on those shows. I've been on shows where we were there until 2 a.m. Um, notoriously, the Friends writer's room was there. They'd like sleep there. The New Girl room slept there. Like, that you knew the shows where they never left. Arrested Development, they never left. They had like sleeping bags. Um, and I think that's bad management. I just don't, I, I just, I was really lucky. How I Met Your Mother was Carter and Craig were my age. We were, we were babies. We all started together and we were like 30, you know? And they had been in rooms like that and I had been in rooms like that. And when I went there, they were like, we don't have to do that. If we come in with a really clear vision, 
and we all really work and we don't mess around with YouTube videos, like we really focus on the work, we can get this done and go home and live our lives and come back with stories the next day that will be great episodes, right? Like you want your writers to have a life. So it was, um, it was really on How I Met Your Mother that I saw like good. The great thing about being on shows, good and bad, is you see what's good and not good. You go, oh, I will never do that. Oh, I will do that. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's good. So I had the benefit of 12 years of being on great and terrible shows where I learned what I would and wouldn't want to do when it was my turn in the chair. So I, there are many things like there are rooms that I was in where ordering lunch was 45 minutes. (laughs) What are you getting? Should we get something for the table? I don't know. Who's ordering? Are you getting the burrito? No, because I want to go, because I like my husband and my kids. So I want to go home. So menus are sent out the night before. When you leave, you get the menu sent to you. You have to send that in by 10 a.m. to the PA. And then we start the room at 10. There's no freaking talking about lunch. It's done before you walk in, right? Like little managerial things that you talk about. I also talk the first day. I say like, hey, all of you are people with lives and people you care about. You get to go to stuff. If your best friend's getting married, you get to go. If your father's having surgery, you get to go. If your kid, I leave in the middle of the day because my kid is at two o'clock is doing a presentation and I'm going, but I'll come back. And I think if you let people do those things, they will fuck. Can I swear? I'm so sorry. I'm trying to keep it together. They'll follow you to the ends of the earth. Because I've been on shows where I'm not kidding. I was on a show where a guy went to his rehearsal dinner for his his rehearsal dinner and had to come back after. Insane. <laughs> Insane, insane, insane. There, we're not, what, we're, what are we doing? We're making jokes and telling stories. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say I benefited from that. I also think I'm just a good manager. I like talking to people. I'm very clear. Um, I say what I feel. I know what I want. I'm very clear in my messaging. So you have 200 employees and you have to talk to them about what you want and how you want it to look and what you want it to be like. And so I'm very open with all my heads of department. I've hired them. You're as sure you hire everybody. So it's all your people, people you've met, people you've worked with before. And I just clearly state, this is what I want. This is what I need. The great news for you is I'm never going to, I've been on shows, you guys, where hot pages were being printed out on set and everyone was waiting for the new pages so they could shoot. That doesn't happen for me. They get a script a month in advance. My carpenters know exactly what they're building. My set people know exactly what to get. There's not a PA being sent out at 2 a.m. to go get a flaming sword. They've known about it for a month. So like, that's the stuff. If you do your homework, now are there things, do scripts get thrown out? Does stuff happen? Sure. But that's the, that should not, that should be rare. That should be rare. That should not be the rule. Um, my question is, how do you get a writing agent? Very, uh, simple. I'm sure. Yes. Okay. So guys, I haven't had to get a writing agent for 15 years. So I will tell you what I'm hearing, but I don't know how valuable it's going to be. When I went to get an agent, I feel like if, if you're hearing, no, you're asking the wrong person. So I was, you gotta be a hustler. You gotta hustle, hustle. If you want to be paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this, you got to get off your ass and hustle. Okay. So that means you're sending mailers, you're doing YouTube videos, you're anything you're doing, you invite people to check it out. Maybe nobody's going to come at first, but I got my agent and manager because you can watch my one-on-one video. I do a whole talk, my whole talk, but basically I put up plays. I invited people, people came and an agent manager came to me and said, we want to represent you. I didn't do mailers. I didn't. I, it's very, very, very hard, especially in this climate, because right now there's no work. And I don't think Hollywood's going to be back fully functioning for a year. So uh, right now, I would say write and write and write and write and rewrite and rewrite and get a group of people together where you guys hear your scripts out loud and rewrite and get those scripts in killer shape, killer shape. Because when you do have the opportunity for someone to, you also, the, the contests are good. 
all of, there's a lot of contests that are reputable contests, Nichols and the fellow, ABC has a fellowship, CBS, NBC, all of them have like new writers fellowships and new writer programs. And there's obviously there's diversity programs and there's, there's all sorts of different types of programs, but apply to those things. Apply to those things because that's you just want as many fans as possible. The more fans you get, the more people will be like, oh, my God, you know who was good? That one guy. Oh, right. Oh, right. He was great. That's what you want because then eventually. But I feel like it's it's rough. I'm not going to lie. It's rough. That's part, part of it is that there is no do, do X, Y, and Z and you're in. It's not like that. Part of the hustle is figuring out how to get rep- represented. And it's, you have to be so good. You have to stick out. You have to be saying something no one else is saying in a way that is specific to you that gets you seen and gets you represented, which seems insurmountable, but it's not. The people that hustle get there. Um, so, yeah, you, you just sort of touched on it a little bit, but um, I, I did have kind of a COVID-19 question. Okay. Um, maybe I should mention that. So I'm, I'm graduating in a couple of weeks, so that kind of like furthers my curiosity, but just because of like your insight into the industry and like specifically Hollywood, um, do you have, I mean, I know a lot of still like pretty unclear, but do you know if like what Hollywood or a lot of productions um, plans are for the next year or um, are you, you think things are going to be pretty shut down or do you, are people trying to kind of make plans based off of the restrictions that might be in place? Um, yeah. that's. Pretty- Yes. So I am at the forefront of this conversation. There's actually an article yesterday in Deadline where I talk about this, if you guys want to read that. Um, Basically, what we are saying is, I feel quite confident that, you know, Hollywood is a multi-billion dollar industry. People want to get back to work. However, we can't be putting people in danger. And I'm not going to step on a set unless it's safe. And if I don't step on a set, I don't expect anybody else on my staff to step on a set. I will not decide there's this idea right now that like people are going to sign a thing that says they might be exposed to COVID. I think that's highly inappropriate to be putting people in danger like that. I will not participate in that. I don't like it. I think that what we need are fast tests. And until I hear a scientist or a, um, a disease specialist tell me that there is another alternative, daily fast tests on sets are what need to happen to make sure that everyone is secure. So what that means is we need to have billions of fast tests available and produced. And right now I can't even go get a test, right? None of us can get tests tested in the United States unless we have uh, symptoms. And we know that this disease is highly, uh, is also asymptomatic. There's actually a study in, in Iceland and now they're doing a study in Northern California where they're testing an entire community to see how many people are walking around without any asymptomatic, but are carrying COVID, right? So that asystematic factor is troubling to me because that means somebody could show up on my set and seem fine, but be giving it to other people. And this is something that's killing people. I'm not okay with people being exposed to that so that we can have a couple of laughs. It's not okay with me. We're making joyful stuff here. So it seems to me that a daily test, like a pregnancy test, like fast, is possible. I just think the production of that is going to take time. So I'm quite sure that greater minds than mine are right now putting together plans to make factories shift from making whatever they were making and shift to making fast tests. I just don't know who is doing that in this moment and how quickly it will take to test these tests to make sure that they are accurate and good to price them in a way that Hollywood feels comfortable buying them. And also I think it's going to be gross if Hollywood buys them up and your average city can't get them. So I feel like really to get America back on track, everyone needs to be able to get fast tests easily. So that just is going to, I just don't see that happening in two weeks or two months. I just think that's going to be six months at least. And then once we are in a place where everyone can be tested, great, we can go back to work. There's an idea too of like a, a drama camp where you go for 30 days and you sequester yourself. But again, I don't know how food is brought in. PAs are all over the city. And I just don't, I just don't see how we can truly be safe doing that. So I think we're a good six months is what uh, I would guess. Do you mind if I ask you a quick follow-up question? Sure. 
Um, so do you have any recommendations for like specifically new graduates that like might have hopes to, to do something in Hollywood like right after school or or just like I guess for anyone that's I feel like go home and save your money for a little while. I don't think this is the time to come here. I think this is the time to like save money. You know, like, listen, I've worked at Banana Republic, Pottery Barn, Houston. I've worked at a million places where I just worked there to save my money and write. Because I think what happens is I talk to a lot of college students that are about to graduate. And you guys are, I've been you. I know what that feels like. You're like, I'm ready. I'm ready to do it, to get in there. I'm ready to do it. The thing is, the waiting to do it is takes time. It all takes time. It's going to take so much more time than you think it's going to take. It took me eight years to get my first writing job. Eight years. And that's pretty fast. And so it's, it's really, you have to look at this like, do I really want to do this? Because you're basically asking yourself, do I want to be a doctor? I get to, I have to go to medical school for 10 years, but at the end of it, I'll get to do this thing. That is the level of like intent you have to have. And then every step of the way, you have to be asking yourself what you're doing to be ready. Because let's say there's a a contest and you submit your script. If that script isn't ready, you got one shot. They're going to read it and decide yes or no. And if it's no, then you got to wait till next year to submit again. So I think so often what happens is you guys aren't quite cooked yet. And that's all right. You're not expected to have all the answers. It takes time. But in the interim, you can keep on cooking yourself you can take this time to like, I'm just going to save a a shit ton of money because moving here is expensive. Moving here is also then you move here and then what? You don't have a job out of the gate as a PA. That takes time. You got to then probably get into a groundlings class or get into a writing class or get into something so that you can start building your LA community if you don't know anybody in LA. I didn't know anybody in LA. I went to college here though. So I had a little bit of a, I had my college friends, right? So I could go to my college friends and we could read stuff. But if you're coming here brand new, you need a minute. You need to give yourself a minute to like, okay, how am I paying my bills? How am I getting around? You need a car here, sadly. You need a car. Um, How am I starting to build out my network? And often the best way to do that is to take a class. If you're a comedy writer, you should be in a Groundlings class or a UCB class or something because in those classes, you're going to meet actors, writers, people that are working on other things that are like, oh my God, you're su- that one guy in our class, he's super cool. Hey, do you want to like PA because my friend that works on this show, that's how it happens, right? But in order to do that, a Groundlings class, a UCB class, those are 600 a shot, I think, to take those classes. So you're talking about moving to LA, getting an apartment and taking a class. All of that is so much money. So what I see a lot is people moving out with great plans. And then after a year, they, it's, they're just out of money and they got to go back home and like replenish or figure something out. So I think coming out with a really strong plan, what right now is giving you is the opportunity to save, 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 write, rewrite, do Zoom calls where you guys are reading your scripts out loud and you cast them so you can hear them so you can rewrite them. Like get your shit tight. This is the time to get it tight. And then to start doing your research, what are the shows that you really love? All of you on the, on the internet can find out who the producers are of your favorite TV shows and find out if you can get email addresses or phone calls to the studio and say, hey, I want to talk to so-and-so. They, you know, be, be ballsy in that way. Hey, I'm a new graduate. Can I send you my resume? I will tell you, just want to be full frank, we get a lot of calls in my office for resumes. I keep them all in a file. I do keep them in a file. Have I ever gone to that file? I haven't. I haven't. Because we are working at lightning speed like this. And anybody I bring into this circle has to be a 100% badass. 100%. I don't have time for no badass. So I need vetting to know that that is a badass. So I need to know somebody who knows them, somebody who I do need to know. So the only way that you can be a person who is getting is if you're here doing the, doing the game. So there's like two prong system, getting yourself ready, making sure you're financially ready to be out here, getting yourself in classes. And then once you're in those classes or once you're in a writing group or once you're in a whatever, find the bar in West Hollywood where all the actors work. 
find that, you know, find, you have to start building your community and then the building of your community and the writing and the rewriting and the rewriting and the rewriting and the, the hustle that you're doing when you're talking to people, all of that will start to open up to you. It just takes time. So I think if people are like, I'm going to go to LA for six months, don't bother. Don't bother to come to LA for nothing's going to happen in six months. <laughs> nothing's going to happen in six months. It, it takes years and that's okay. I don't, I'm not, I don't want you to hear that and be like, oh shit. I want you to hear that and be like, be like okay, cool, cool. Then I'm going to get my shit together so that I have a really strong path. I'm going to start researching now. What are the, is, what are the classes that are in LA? Who are the acting teachers? Do I also, I also think it's always great for writers to take acting classes. Take an acting class. You'll have such a great experience. Even if you don't want to be an actor, take a class in directing, take a class in editing. You, it will only make you stronger when you are a showrunner that you have that skill set. And in the interim, you're meeting more people who are like, oh my God, that guy is so cool. He was really cool to be around. He was really nice. My friend works as a PA on this thing. Like, I'll recommend you because you're like super cool guy. And like, I know you're like a badass and I've been in class with you or I've heard your stuff or I've seen you try to be an actor and it wasn't great for you. But I know that really what you want to do is be a writer. This is how it all happens. And I'm also in a pay up Hollywood. I'm, I'm one of the uh, supporters of pay up Hollywood because also Hollywood is unfortunately kind to the privileged. That means it's, it's really kind. If you, if you have mom and dad that can help pay your bills, God bless you. No, no hate, no hate. It's just, it does make it very difficult for you to take a PA job at $12 an hour or $14 an hour or whatever the minimum wage is. That's not, that's not a livable wage. Um, if, if somebody else is putting the bill for you, but for many of us, at least for me, that was not the case. I didn't have anybody to help me out financially. So when you do take these lower level entry level jobs, you're struggling to make ends meet. You are struggling. So again, having money saved up again, having, I mean, take a year, take whatever you need. So you have thousands of dollars set, honestly. Because there's also unforeseen the amount of parking tickets you're going to get when you first move here. Unbelievable. <laughs> you won't believe how much you have to pay in parking tickets. Hi, uh, I'm Dylan. Uh, my question is, uh, since uh, One Day at a Time offers such a unique perspective, uh, what are some other perspectives that you would want to see in television or some that you already love see, love to see on TV? I mean, I love so much. I really love comedy. I feel like Brooklyn Nine-Nine is like one of my favorite shows. I think it's so good and so funny. Um, I love Andy Samberg. I think he's just a delight. Um, and I'm friends with Melissa and Stephanie. So that's, you know, it's lovely to just see them. Andre Brower is a god. Uh, I love The Good Place. I love uh, Insecure, which is an HBO show with Issa Rae. Um, I'm really excited about Mindy Kaling's new show. I think that looks pretty awesome. Um, I'm, I'm more drawn to comedy, but I do still enjoy, you know, drama for me. I think there's always going to be a character that looks and sounds like me at the center of my stories. Cause I didn't get to see that. Right. So I want to offer that up to people. Um, but I, I'm excited at Amazon. I'm excited to write teen stuff. I'm excited to write romantic comedy stuff. Uh, romantic comedy is actually more where my writing lives than family comedy. Uh, so those are the episodes of One Day at a Time that I enjoy the most is the romantic comedy elements with Penelope and with Elaine and Sid and with, you know, I, I just love that stuff. I love the flirts and makeouts. That's my faves. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that, that, but it's, you know, I have like a little notebook with ideas that I've been filling for years and it's going to just be fun to break that open again and see, see what's in there and see what I want to make. But I think because I've been doing multi- for a long time and love, I love multicam, but it's not cool. Multicam is not a cool uh, format. It's an old school format. And we've been really fortunate that people have liked us even though we're multicam, but Amazon is a little edgier. So they will want single cam for me, which is totally fine. I'm, I'm down to try that out. And I've worked on single camera shows before, so it won't be new to me. Um, it's just less, you know, joke based, but that's, yeah, that's all the, but for me, because it's me, it's females and people of color and just the world as it looks, you know, like I like having all of that in my, in my world. Cause that's what my friend group looks like. You know, my husband's a cute white guy, like having those guys around. Um, 
And, uh, but you know, our friends are all of, of, of it's Los Angeles. It's a very metropolitan city. So it's a, all the colors of the rainbows it should be. So uh, I just wanted to ask a question. Um, as a showrunner, since obviously this is a sitcom show, I was just wondering like uh, what genre is in your opinion easier to show run or what are the unique challenges that come with show running a comedy specifically I guess drama is a thousand times easier <laughs> there's no jokes there's no jokes when I was on dramas I couldn't believe it when I was on iZombie like it blew my brain how quickly you break story because you don't have to sit on and pitch jokes drama is so much easier so much easier I just personally I don't like I can't write procedural I'm not good at writing procedural like who did it? The somebody's dead. We have to figure. I don't care. I don't care. It's not my. It's not my jam. Um, it's a skill set, and some people can crush at that. But I, it was like the worst television experience for me because I didn't. The zombie stuff I thought was really fun, but the who killed them and why and looking up how people die. Oh, not for me. Not for me. Uh, comedy is. It takes the the jokes take a minute. The jokes take a minute. Having the the dialogue be clever and bantery, but still feel naturalistic, which is what we hope. Like I, I prefer naturalistic comedy. I feel sometimes things feel written to me and it happens in every show you ever watch because it is written, but as much as possible, I like it to feel like it's not written. If you know, to have that, that cleverness while not feeling too uh, sweated over. So I think comedy is the hardest. I think it's also the hardest to act. You have a lot of comedic actors that can do killer drama, but not a lot of dramatic that can do killer comedy. So, you know, what just what this cast does is hard. It's really hard. And they make it look really easy. But it's super fun. I mean, you're laughing all day. It's the best. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask, what are some things you do to... Uh, I'm sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, perfect. Um, what are some things you do to retain continuity between... Uh, different directors uh, for the TV show? Like, um, is there like a baseline of things you provide them with or like what point of the process do they come in? Well, you know, that really depends on the show. So because I've been a visiting director on other shows, for our show, you just have to watch the show. And then because I'm a very vocal showrunner, I will tell the director uh, things I like, things I don't like. I like flats. I like shots that are flat. If you're watching a show, like, a lot of Disney Channel shows actually rake the camera. You're not looking at a proscenium. You're looking at a lot of rake shots. I don't like rake shots. I like the theater aspect of multicam. I like it to feel like I'm watching a play with the proscenium. And so it being flat, that's where I think the comedy plays the best. Um, and then you obviously, sh you know, you go in for your, for your close-ups or your two shots or your overs. But for the most part, I'm going to want one master of those four cameras to be a flat shot. So when directors come in and it's the camera day and the camera's raked, I'm like, I want that. I need to see cam to be flat. And then it's done because I'm there for all of the shooting on. It depends on the show you go on. But, you know, the director has to any show I've directed. I've watched episodes of the show. I'm familiar with how they shoot it. And then I'll go in and tell them this is what I want to do. But if you want this raked or if you want more close-ups or whatever you want I'm here to provide and I'll get that for you for dramas they actually have a tone meeting because there's so many new directors so they'll do a specific tone meeting where they talk about what things tonally look like what the camera angles should be given the type of show so it really is show to show I mean comedy when I I, I uh shadowed Brooklyn Nine-Nine which is my my favorite comedy out there right now and they do this great thing on the show, if you haven't seen it, where they, sh whenever there's like a joke to punctuate it, the camera shoots in on them. And I thought that those were worked out by the director. And when I went there that day, the camera guys just do it. They just instinctively know where to do it. That's not worked out by the director. Unless the director doesn't like it. And then they'll say, you know what, instead, can you shoot in here? But that, that's just a crew that is so tightly wound and so in communication with one another that they just do it on their own, which is so inter was so interesting to me. So the continuity is really the job of the showrunner to maintain a very clear voice to each of the directors that come in and let them know anything they need to know to be successful. Here are the here are the here's what you don't say to this actor. 
don't do this, don't say this. This actor, you can do this with. You know, you give them the behind the scenes of who does what well, how to talk to who, and try to give them the to to crush it. And you know, before this is all, uh, no, this is like lockbox, right? This this conversation. Um, before I went to Mad About You, I had a lot of people call me and say, Helen is tough. Helen Hunt is tough. Be ready. She's going to fight you on stuff. And I was like, all right, I'm look, I love, I love tough women. Cause that means I am a tough woman and I work with tough women. And that just means they care. So I like tough. I like people caring. So all week, Helen was a dr- angel, angel. Okay. And then one day there was a, a scene that was blocked, a huge group scene where the person she was talking to was upstage. And when you have a multicam, you don't have a fourth wall. The fourth wall is the cameras. Okay. So if you have an actor looking upstage, that means this is what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing that face and I can't get a camera up there because then I'm going to expose that there's no fourth wall. So I said, Helen, here's what I need you to do. I know that they're back there. I need you to look at the corner. So at least I'm getting this. Because if she looks at the corner, I'm at least seeing her face. Okay, I'm seeing a profile, but I'm seeing her face. Can you deliver the line to the, that, that wall right there, the corner of the wall? She was like, you want me to deliver a line where I'm angry to the corner of the wall? And I said, yes. You want me to say it to the wall? Yep. I want you to look right there and I want you to say it. And on, it's going to look amazing on camera. Okay. And she did it. And it was great. So it was like, oh, this poor woman has been... People have been saying she's tough. She just needs somebody to come in and be like, this is what we're doing. And because I came in and said, this is what we're doing. Yep, that's what I need you to do. She was a freaking dream come true. I I thought she was wonderful. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Because a lot of it is just chemistry. A lot of it's chemistry. And her and I just had good chemistry. And I liked her and she liked me. And we listened to one another. And here's what I need. And it wasn't like, hey, can you, would you mind? It wasn't that. It was, this is what I need. Can Can you look at the thing and do the line right there? Okay. And we were good. So it's that kind of stuff. It's that kind of stuff. Actors are the, you know, that's the toughest part is coming in and it's lots of family you're walking into. And you all of a sudden have to be the head of the family when they already have their own dynamics. So that's the tricky part is respecting what's already there, knowing you're the guest, but also saying, I'm the guest, but this week it's my week. So this is what we got to do. And we got to get out here in a, in a good manner. Hi, I'm Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa. Um, what storyline do you think has been the most impactful on One Day at a Time? Uh, I would say two have been. the. I would say the um, obviously the Elena coming out storyline, her father not approving um, of her, and then the family rallying to support her has been, that's what a lot of our fans talk to us about. A lot of young people watch the show with their families and come out to their families or watch the show with them, their grandparents as a means of having them understand what it is for them. And so that means a great deal. I've had so many moms and grandmas hug me (laughs) Um, at these events and like cry in my arms. It's a lot of hugging and crying. And it's a lot of parents and grandparents that hug me because I think they are afraid for their kids. I don't think, I actually think that that a lot of um, what is deemed as not acceptance is they're worried about society accepting their kids or being kind to their kids. And that fear leads them to act out in a way that, that they don't accept their kids when really they love their kids or grandkids and are afraid of a world that's going to be unkind to them. That's what I've mostly found. And so giving voice to that and seeing Penelope come to terms with um, with her own issues about having a queer daughter uh, and, and her father finally coming around and having a real conversation with her. That's been probably one of the most um, moving storylines for me. And then Penelope's anti, her mental health journey of being on medication, going off medication, uh, trying therapy. Mental health is often not spoken about in, especially in communities of color. So that's also a, um, some, a storyline that has been really, talked about a lot and and that's been very meaningful to me and then schneider schneider's uh going off the falling off the wagon also um you know i actually had a a quick question um what what have you since 
you have moved from Netflix to pop. Yeah. Um, how have you had to adjust the show transitioning between those two things? Because the, uh, the timing is different. Yeah, it's really just the timing. The show is exactly the same except for the timing. We have commercials. And so the, the beauty is Mike was on Everybody Loves Raymond. I was on How I Met Your Mother. Like, we know what commercial, we know what that is. It w- was fine. The commercials are fine. It's more the, um, you know, we had to cut eight minutes mm. for each episode. So that's a bummer because we had a lot more time to just sit with the characters and that was really fun. But it's actually been fine. It's just, it's just a little bit more zippy zappy. You've taken up almost an hour of your time. This is wonderful. I hope that was helpful, you guys. I hope that was helpful. I know it's scary. I literally have been you. I really have. I've been you. I know what it's like to be like, what? I don't know anyone in LA. I don't know. I will tell you, it's a lot less scary of a place. There's a lot of really nice people. It's a booming time for content. There's so many more shows than there ever were before, which means so many more jobs. So just hustle, save your money, get out here and, and, you know, hire me one day. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Nice meeting you all. Good luck. Thank you, Gloria. Really appreciate it. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.